the last couple of weeks we've been talking about expectations and uh, talking about living with expectations, meaning basically living with an expectation in our life for future events, for how we expect Christ to come and how, we, how our life should be filled with our life on a daily basis, with expectation, with, with looking forward to something else happening so we can get by, get by maybe the problems in our life or some of the doldrums in our life, but looking at the expectations of where life is going. And then last week we talked about living under expectations, meaning living under um, a person's expectations or other influence expectations in our life. And how important they all are, expectations, um, looking forward to something. It's all part of faith, and without faith we cannot please God. So expectations are a very important part of our life. And if we don't live with a proper sense of expectation, then we wander and don't accomplish a whole lot, or if anything, in our life. And it becomes very dangerous. Today, I would like to talk about personal expectations. I'd like to hone it down just a little bit further into not living with expectation or living under someone else's expectations, but my personal expectations. And when we talk about personal expectations, I think that will help us as we develop our Christian faith and as we mature, that we will then understand what it means to live under the power of the Holy Spirit and understand how to live for Jesus empowered by the personal expectation of the Holy Spirit in our life. And personal expectations are, are probably more important than all of them because, in all honesty, they're the ones you live by. You can live, you, you, can, you can have, a lot of people can have expectations for you, but the ones that are your personal expectations are the ones that really only matter. Because they're the ones that you do. A good example of that is an employee-employer relationship. If you have an employer that is a very um, hard employer, and he, he does a lot of inspection on what you do, when you're working, how you're working, you probably will attune yourself then to the, to the, the sound of his footsteps. Whenever you hear him coming, you will work a little bit harder because you know that he is going to be watching you. And then as soon as he leaves, you go back to reading the paper. And you go back to um, doing what you were doing, because if, if you don't make as an employee the expectation of personal expectation to be what you work by, then you're going to, fi you're going to find ways of getting around the system. You're going to work only when you're being supervised, or you're only going to work when, when it's um, pertinent for you because people are watching. So it's important that if I want to be a good employee, I have to have my own set of proper personal expectations to know that I will work whether I'm being watched or not. That is the rewardable type of employee that we all want. We don't want to have to be watching our employees all the time. And as a Christian person, it's very, very similar in our, life, in our life because we live in a time of grace. And because we have grace, that we always don't live sometimes by the word of the law because we have grace. And we think that grace will cover everything. Well, yes, grace is a great word, and I love grace. 
But yet I have to have a personal expectation in my life of doing the right thing for the right reason and not with the expectation that grace is going to cover my sin when I willfully don't do what I'm supposed to be doing. So it's important that we um, understand that and that we don't abuse our freedoms because we have a lot of freedoms. We have a lot of freedoms. And, and as we have high expectations of ourselves, that will help us not abuse those freedoms that we have and not um, take advantage of the system that we have and that we will be more than likely successful in our business because we don't take advantage of our boss and in our spiritual life because we don't take advantage of grace because we can take advantage of both. It's interesting to note that the gifts that we have naturally are very similar to the spiritual gifts that God gives us. What I'm good at physically, what I'm good at naturally, I will only become better when I'm spiritually empowered by them. So I can walk my life in the natural and do the things that I do. And what changes then when I become a spiritual man is who my master is. It doesn't change the color of my skin. It doesn't change the hair color. It doesn't change what I look like when I become a Christian. I still am Mike, and I still have all the same physical attributes that I had before I was a Christian. What changes is my master. What changes is the thing that I'm motivated by. And as I change that, my natural abilities are still there, and they're still operating, but I'm now operating with a spirit of Christ-likeness with a Christ-like nature versus the evil nature, so that as we're empowered by the Holy Spirit, we only get better at we do at what we do. And, and that helps us as well to know that it's important that I have to have my personal expectations lining up with the Word of God so that I don't let my natural abilities and I don't depend on what I can do naturally be my level of success that I have to have my expectations set on what the Word of God says for me. And when I live that way, now I'm not just depending on my abilities, but I'm depending on what the Holy Spirit is leading me to day after day after day after day. And I'm, leading it, and I'm getting into what the Holy Spirit wants me to be, not what I want to be. So much of life is done in the private of a person's mind and my personal decisions. And there's a lot of external influences that come over my life over the time being. But what I need to do is I need to be sure that I keep my expectations proper, proper, with godly principles, that I don't go over the top in either direction, that I stay in a proper level set of expectations personally. We talked last week about Jesus had a personal mission statement. And it was mentioned in three different verses. We talked about Luke 19.10. It says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Jesus' mission statement was to save lost people. He didn't come just to be a good man. He didn't come so that we would have Christmas. He didn't come so that we could celebrate Easter and all the holidays. He came to seek and save the lost. He had a very specific mission statement. John 3.17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. He didn't come to be a mean Savior. He didn't, come, he didn't come to be a hard master. He came to save the world. 
And then Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some understand slowness, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. We talked about that a little bit in Sunday school. We talked a lot about a lot of stuff in Sunday school today. Scott was on a roll, man. He was just rolling and rolling. It was good. But it says that he does not want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. What does that mean to you? That he would not want anyone to perish. Does that mean that people will perish? If God says, I don't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance, does that mean that everybody is going to go to heaven? But yet God said that. He is patient with me. Now I like that up there. I can see it. Now he doesn't want anyone to perish. So if people are going to perish, is it because of a lack of God's purpose? Is it a lack of God's will that people will perish? No. No, it's not by any lack of God's will. Because God says, I don't want anybody to. And not only that, I'm going to be very patient with you. And I'm going to give you every opportunity to. To what? To make a choice. To make a choice. We have become oversensitized to the, to the politically correct world we live in. Basically, we, uh, we have been overly hit with being politically correct. And if you say do and don't, you're probably going to get in trouble by somebody. We avoid the moral do's and don'ts of the Word of God. We're afraid that if we read and apply God's Word as it is written in the form of, of obeying what it says, then we will become the legalistic police that roam the churches and become the church of works rather than the church of grace. Like I said earlier, I believe in grace. And I'm really thankful that we have grace because none of us deserve God's goodness. But at the same time, I'm not a stupid man. I can read the Bible, and I can read the words that come in the Bible, and I can know how they are to be applied in my life. And it doesn't give me the excuse of doing things or not doing things. As a growing and maturing Christian, there may be a time that I have to discipline myself to do something or not to do something just because I'm instructed by God's Word. There may be a time in my life where I just have to be told what to do. My wife knows that. Don't you, Chris? Yeah, I mean, when it comes to organizational stuff, I'm not very good. And, and she's very good at organizational stuff. I mean, we just had a major, to me it would have been a major, major, major problem at our house this weekend. We had to paint the inside of the... Um, of the cabinets, where we, the, the food pantries. We have two little closets, and we had to paint the inside of it. So we had to take everything out, and there was a lot of stuff. And we painted the inside, and, and we had, the counter was full of stuff. I mean, uh, noodles and cans and fruit, and I, mean, I just, it's just overwhelming to me. I just looked at it, and I just was overwhelmed by the stuff. And I really thought we would be there a week, putting it back together. 
And I said, man, I, I called Chris. She was working. And I said, Chris, do you really want me to empty the second cupboard? Because it's really going to be a mess here. And I really don't want to have to have you come home to this big mess. And she goes, no, do it. Just, I was really looking to get out so I could watch a football game. But, but she said, do it anyways and, uh, and paint it. So I did it. And we got home. And sure enough, it was a mess. And I thought, man, I thought today we'd be working on it. But it wasn't. An, we got done with dinner and everything, and I was doing some other stuff. And uh, she's in there working away, working away. And I came in, and within an hour, it was all put away. It blew my mind. I couldn't believe she did it. I mean, it was so overwhelming to me. I'm sorry. There are some things I just can't do. And I can't organize things. Look at my desk. I just can't. Help me, God, help me with this. But she does such a good job. And, and But yet... I've had times with her that in my, this was really humbling for me, but I had to do it. And when I, when I had a garage uh, in Brighton, uh, my workbench was a mess. And I said, Chris, I need your help. Just come in and tell me where to put the stuff and I'll put it there. I, and she goes, okay, then take this and put that there, put this there. And I could do that. It was hard for me to humble myself to do it, but I did. And, what, and after, after half an hour, 45 minutes, my workbench was all organized. And I left, and, and it stayed that way for a couple of days. <laughs> but I just had to have somebody tell me what to do. And sometimes that's the way we are with God. Sometimes we just need to have God tell me what to do. And, and then be humble enough to receive it. You know, <laughs> who was it the other day? Somebody was telling me, oh, D- Doug, it was you. It said somebody called you and asked you about something. And then as soon as you gave them the answer, they start arguing with you right away. So what's the point? If the guy's going to call you and ask you what your opinion is, and as soon as you give him the answer, he says, no, no, that's not what it can't be that. Well, what's the point of calling and asking? If he's not going to take your advice, then don't call. Well, that's the way it is with God sometimes. We say, Holy Spirit, help me. Be my helper. Be my guide. Be my counselor. Be my comforter. And as soon as he comes in and gives me a word, I want to fight with him. And I want to say, no, no, not that way. I mean this. Why don't you just stop? And why don't you just listen to what the Holy Spirit's trying to say and then just do it? Why do we make it so hard? Why do we want to argue with Him all the time? And why do we want to confuse the situation when all we need to know is there comes a point in time in my life when I just have to listen and do? Or read the Word and do it? Why do I want to have to make it so difficult? Understand this, that God would never give me an instruction or he would never ask me to do something that is not for my benefit. He would never hurt me. But yet I act like he's going to kill me. I am afraid of the Holy Spirit. I'm afraid of what's going to happen to me when I give myself to God. Like he's going to be a big mean taskmaster and he's going to ask me something that's going to hurt me. He will never hurt you. He will never give you an instruction that is going to hurt you. He will always give you things that are for your benefit. It may not feel good right now. It may not. It may be bittersweet right now because it might put you out of your comfort zone a little bit. Or it might put you in a situation where you're not comfortable with doing this or that. But down the road, it will be a sweet aftertaste. Because you'll have done the will of God. And when you do the will of God, only good things happen. Nothing bad comes out of the will of God. Nothing bad comes out of the will of God. So after this period of disciplining myself, this training period of forcing myself to listen to God, 
and forcing myself after, and maybe it's prayer time, maybe it's forcing myself to come in on a regular, consistent time of prayer or Bible study or whatever it is that you struggle with a little bit. I have to get in, I have to get up in the morning early and I come in and I pray. Whether I feel like it or not, I pray. That's discipline. That's personal expectations. I come in and I pray, whether I feel like it or not. Why? Because I'm developing my relationship with God. I'm developing my relationship with Jesus. I'm doing what Jesus did. Jesus got up quite often in the Bible. We talk about in the, in the, in the, in the, uh, in the Gospels that talk about Jesus' life. That he got up quite often in the mornings and would take himself to a solitary place and pray. So if, we've said this before. So if Jesus has to pray, I need to pray. So I have to discipline myself to get up in the morning and pray and read the Word and study. And for a while, it's hard because I'm doing it out of sense of discipline. I'm doing it out of sense of I need to exercise my body to do it. Like, a, like an athlete needs to go out and run. You don't run a marathon by, by running the marathon the first day. No, you go time after time after time again and you run and run and run and run and build up to it. But it's a fact. It's a form of discipline. Same thing with our spiritual life. Why do, we, why do we think that we can have a good spiritual life and not have discipline in it? Where does that ever come from? Where does the Bible ever say that you don't have to have discipline spiritually? It doesn't say that. It says you need to beat yourself into submission. You need to take control of your life and, and discipline yourself. But after I do that enough, all of a sudden I find myself moving from discipline into desire that I want to do this. And when I can move, when it moves into an issue of wanting to, I'm achieving godly measures in my life. And now I'm, now I'm, not, having to go because, I'm not having to come because I have to. I'm coming to God's presence because I want to. Because I'm expecting now to hear from the Lord. I'm expecting to hear from the Holy Spirit. That is maturing through our Christ-like life. And that's where we need to get to it. But we don't have the reason. We don't have the ability to, uh, to make excuses. Now, saying all that does not make me a perfect man. No, not at all. But we do have to read God's word. And, and we cannot use the freedoms of grace as an excuse. James chapter 1, verses 22 through 25 is very clear here. Let's read this. James chapter 1, 22 through 25. It says, Do not merely listen to the word. And so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Pretty simple, isn't it? Do what it says. Four words. Don't need to be a Bible theologian to figure that out. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom... And continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. What kind of life do you want? Do you want a life that you're blessed in what you do? Then simply read the word and do it. Don't compromise with it. Just do it. It doesn't take an awful lot of thinking if we just do it. There's a, there's a parable in Matthew that I would like to look at. Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. It's a long passage of scripture here. 
But it's a parable of three men that were given a large sum, a large sum of money. And uh, Jesus uses this parable, parable to teach uh, a very important topic here on personal expectations. Let's read through it. Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. It says, Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled the accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come, share your master's happiness. Therefore, the target. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here it is. Here's what belongs to you. The master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put your, my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I return, see, Tim, this is for you. Put your money with the bankers. Put your money with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Like the talent from him and give it, take the talent from him. And give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And here's the hard part about it all. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Understand a little bit the background of this parable. This was at the end of Jesus' life. He was within his last week of dying here when this parable was, was told. And what, the, what he was t saying is this, the master is really him. Jesus is talking about himself going away and going to be gone for a long time. And the talents is not what we think of talents. A talent at that time was a large sum of money. It could have been up to 20 years wages. It was a lot of money. So he gave to one servant five talents, which is a lot of money. To another one, two, which is a lot of money. And to another one, one, which is still a lot of money. And he went away then with the intention of coming back and reaping a reward from these servants. Because he didn't give it the money to these people for them to spend on themselves. He gave them the money to invest and to bring back a reward when he came back. And he didn't tell them when he was coming back. He just said, I'm going, you take care of it, you deal with the business, and, you, and I'm going to come back, and when I come back, I want to see your return. I want to see what you've done. And this is what godly life is, people. When God made Adam and Eve, he put him in the garden to work the garden. He didn't put him in the garden to lay back and relax. We have an image that, that, that the good life is doing nothing. 
The good life is having so much money that I don't have to work. The good life is retirement. The good life is being lazy. That's not right. That is from the enemy. The good life is working. The good life is being productive. The good life is having a job to do and doing it to the best of your ability. That's the good life. That's what eternity is going to be like, whether you like it or not. We, th- we think eternity, as the, c- the TV commercials, are uh, playing strumming harps on clouds and doing nothing for eternity. Well, how boring is that? Doing nothing forever and ever and ever. We're going to be working. We're going to be very occupied. Our minds, our hands, our bodies, we're going to be working in the kingdom of God forever. So let's just get used to the concept of work. Let's not take it from the negative aspect of drudgery. Let's put it in the positive aspect of positive, good, solid, old-fashioned, elbow-greasing work. There's nothing wrong with that. That's what we're intended to do. That's what we're supposed to do. So when he gave them the money, he gave that to them as an investment time, that they would come back and then he would uh, reap a reward This long time implies where we're living today. The time began at at Jesus' ascension, where he went to heaven, where he left, and now we are in that period of long time of when he comes back. So we are the stewards. We are one of those three men. We are. And he gives us all the talents. Now, we can look at talents multiple ways. We can look at it as money. We can look at it as our physical talents, our giftings, or we can look at it as any resource that we have. God has entrusted us as stewards of what we have, not owners. I don't own anything. You don't own anything. You don't even own your house, even if it's paid off. The government does. Because you stop paying taxes and see what happens. You stop paying taxes for a while, you'll see who really owns your house. So let's just understand that we are not owners. We're stewards. And to be a good steward, then, we have to have personal expectations that I'm going to work hard, I'm going to do the best that I can do, and I'm not going to get lazy, and I'm not going to get selfish, and I'm not going to get greedy, and I'm not going to take what was entrusted to me as a steward and call it mine. No, it's all God's. I'm just a steward. So he gave one man five talents, or a lot of money. He gave one man two talents, and he gave man one talent. He gave them according to his ability. Now here's another misnomer that we have, that we're all the same. We're not all the same. We're not supposed to be the same. You have different talents. You have different gifts than I have. You are better at certain things than I am. And, I, and that's okay. I am not to get jealous over what you are good at. I am not to get envious at what you're good at and then feel bad about what I'm not good at. And the same with, with you. You're not to envy me or I'm not to envy you. You do what you're good at. You were, you were given the talents that you were given according to your abilities. Politically incorrect to say that, I know. Because there's a difference between men and women. But yet, politically correct says, no, there's not. No, women can serve in the military just like a man. Women can be in infantry just like a man. Well, you know what? Men are stronger than women. They are. Physically, they're stronger. What's wrong with saying that? 
There's nothing wrong with having differences. That doesn't mean they're bad. See, when, we, when differences become bad, it's, it's when I start comparing myself to somebody else. And I want to make myself better than somebody else. That's when differences become bad. That's where, the pro, that's where some of the problems come with the Holy Spirit and Pentecostals versus a non-Pentecostal church. Because, because we think we have something that they don't have, we're different. And now we, can, we start comparing ourselves to them, and, and they start comparing ourselves to us, and all of a sudden it's a haves and a haves-nots, and, oh, you think you're better than us because you have this. And, and all that, that's where that faction comes in and all this argument comes in. Here's the whole point of all of it. Stop looking at people. Look at Jesus. He's the one we're supposed to compare ourselves to. He's the one I'm supposed to strive after, not people. Paul said, look at Paul, because Paul was a good example. Because when Paul said that, remember, the Bible wasn't written. Paul was writing it as he was speaking it, through the unction and through the, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So Paul could say, look at me, follow my example, because he was godly. He was the godly man that was bringing the Bible to, to, to fruition at that point in time. But there's nobody here today that can say that. There is no man that can say, watch me and do as I do. If he does, run from him because he's a false teacher. If he does, do not listen to him because he's a false teacher. The only people that, the only person that we're to look at is Jesus Christ. And we get through Jesus Christ through the word of God. Not by any other inspirational document. Not by any other writer. You can get a lot of good advice from good Bible teachers and good writers, but never what the Word of God says. The Word of God is truth. And that's where we go, to the Word of God. And then don't water it down to make you feel good. Just read it for what it is and do your best to apply it in your life for what it is. That's being the good steward. That's being part of it, being the good steward. Let's look at a couple of the men. Man 1 and 2 went to work immediately and began the multiplication effort of the money. They went to work right away with the money, and they didn't quit until the master came back. They didn't waste time thinking about if they should work or what happens to them if they didn't work. They just went to work. And they didn't analyze the situation and say that, well, we live in a time of grace, and that by our working here, it's going to appear that we're working our own salvation out because of the works that were to do. Um, so they didn't, you know, they said, well, we better not do this because all of a sudden now people are going to look at me about my works. Well, that's nonsense. They went to work. They multiplied the money. They did what they were supposed to do. And they didn't worry about it. They just did it. They just went to work because they wanted to please their master. Man number three, on the other hand, was a fearful man. And he took the money and dug a hole and buried the money in a hole. When it came to give an account of the time and use of the talent, man, man one and two were excited and they were ready to give the report back to the master. See, they understood that they were just stewards of what was given to them and it was their charge as a steward to invest it and bring, it and bring back a return. Their days were filled with personal expectation of diligently working hard to show themselves approved when the master comes back. And as soon as he arrived, they were already they were ready to give a positive and a profitable report. 
they were ready to give a profitable report. See, they were living in this sense of personal expectation, knowing that what they were doing, that they were doing the best that they could with the talent that was entrusted to them. And their intention was to work it until the day he got back. They didn't have a retirement option built into the clause that says when I get to be a certain age or I have a certain amount, I'm going to stop. I think the parable could go on and on. And, and he just the, the master came back just so happened when they doubled it. But probably if he wouldn't have come back then, it might have been a tripling. It might have been a quadrupling of the, of the talent, of the money, because it didn't stop there. But yet we have an area, we have a time in our life to think, oh, I'm only going to do so much for God and I'm going to quit. This is not a con- condemnation. This is not a rebuke. This is an encouragement, older people, seniors. It's never too late to start. It's never too late. Keep going. You may not do what you did before, but maybe you're going to take a different perspective. Maybe you're going to be a a prayer. You can always pray. You can always pray. And that's what is very profitable for you because you pray for your kids and pray for the other generations behind you. Pray for your church. It doesn't make any difference how old you are. Retirement options are not built in to the parable of the stewards. The Bible clearly also tells us where one's treasure is is where his heart is. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21 says, Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, but store up for yourself, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The message says it this way in verse 21. It says, It's obvious, isn't it? The place where your treasure is is the place you will most want to be. And that's where you're going to end up. So if your treasures are on earth and are of the physical realm of earth, and if that's where you're spending all your effort and time is to build up big accounts here, that's where your heart is going to be, and that's where you're going to end up. Understand what's going to happen to everything on earth. It's going to burn. It's all going to burn and melt. If that's where your treasure is, your treasure is going to burn and it's going to melt for eternal destruction. However, if your treasure is in heaven, if your treasure is not about what we get out of this world, but what we do here to put and store for heavenly treasures, then your treasures will be eternal. And that's the way God ever intends everything. It's always eternal. He never looks just at the physical. He never looks just at the temporary. He's always looking down the road to the eternal. It doesn't mean we can't enjoy our life. It doesn't mean we can't be prosperous here. It doesn't mean we can't enjoy good things here. But if that's all you're intending to do, then you're going to be lost and you're going to have a very, very, very bad outcome at the end. Man number three, however, being fearful of the master, probably lived a life of remorse and regret that he ever received the money in the first place. He just didn't bury it and then stop thinking about it. I got to tell you, he probably thought about it every day. He buried it and then walked away thinking, oh, what am I going to do now? I have this talent. I have this money. He gave me this thing to do something with, and I'm not doing it. He didn't have a carefree life. He might have forgot it every once in a while in one of his drinking binges. Or one of his drug adapt, one of his one of his drug trips, 
or maybe on a good vacation. He might have forgot about it for a while, but when he came home, the problem was still there. I still have this talent. I still have this thing that the master gave me to replicate, and I haven't done it. What am I going to say when he gets back? And so he spent all of his time, rather than productively working with this time, he spent all of his time coming up with excuses. And he memorized his excuses so that when the master came back, he had them all lined up. And he did. And what were they? His excuses were, you're a, um, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered. I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. He went and spent a lot of time on his excuses that the other two men never even thought about because they never thought about not being faithful. They never thought about it. They just did what they were supposed to do and they were eager to have the master come back because they were going to get the reward that he wanted them to get and, he was, and they were going to give the, the, the prosperous report. But the third man said, oh, I, I'm sure he fretted every day. Is he coming back today? Is he coming back today? What am I going to say? What am I going to say? Listen, people, the rapture is near. The end of the time is near. That's why Jesus said the parable when he said it because he was going away. And he wanted to give them a word picture of people. This is what it's going to be like when I come back. What are you doing with your talents? Are you like the third man that is, that is regretting the day, that is looking um, with fearful anticipation of what's going to happen? I can remember as a young person, I used to hate to watch this, the, the, the evening news because it would scare me of all the bad things happening in the world. Because I had this sense of expectation in my life as a, as, a non, as a young person, not really sure if I was saved or not. Not really sure if I really had it all put together. And I would not want to listen to it because I didn't want to know. Well, ignorance is not bliss here. You need to know, and you need to know that the Master is coming back. And he's going to ask you, what have you done with your talents? And do you want to be the man, number three, that, is, that has rehearsed all the the explanations and all the, the, the excuses about why you didn't? Or do you want to be like man one and two and say, here, I, I have been waiting so long for you to come back. Here, I've worked. Here's, your, here's what I have. I would have had three times more. If you would have given me more time, I would have had more. But since you're here, here's what I've given you back. That's the lifestyle we want to live as a Christian. That's the kind of mentality we want to have, that we're constantly looking for more to do for God. Our days here should not be filled with days of regret, days of sorrow, days of woe is me, but our days should be filled with what can I do today to put one more treasure in heaven? What can I do today to do one more thing for God that when he comes back, I'm going to give him more and more and more? And when I can live that way of personal expectation, that's the joy of the Lord. Because now I'm taking my eyes off my problems. I'm taking my eyes off my own issues. I'm taking my eyes off my woe is me. I look, at, look at what I'm sacrificing. Look at what I'm giving up. Because I'm taking my perspective as the day is not for me. The day is for my master. Because I'm only a steward of the, the moments that I have. And when I live that way, I can anticipate glorious return. And glorious rewards. I mean, Jackie, if you'd come. You know, when Jesus walked this earth, he had a lot of confidence. We talked about it a little bit a while ago. He had a lot of confidence. He had confidence because he knew who he was. 
He had confidence because he prayed every day. He knew who his father was. He was not an orphan child down here. He knew who he was. As a Christian man, I know who I am in Christ. 1 John 2, 24-25 says, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Skip down to verse 28. It says, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears... We may have confidence and not shrink back, not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Let's reread that and replace the word abide with continue. It says, let what you heard from the beginning continue in you. If what you heard from the beginning continues in you, then you too will continue in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. And now, little children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Jesus walked this life in such a confident fashion. I can walk my life in the same confident fashion because I continue in Jesus, because I abide in him, because the Holy Spirit dwells within me. I don't have to be fearful. I can, I can accept healings. Last night, I had some dreams. Maybe it was because I took NyQuil. But let me tell you, last night I was healed in my dreams. You, I had a cold yesterday. You all saw it. I was sniffling. I was, I was coughing. I was sneezing. The night before, I coughed a lot, didn't I, Chris, in the night. Last night, I did not cough one time. I had a dream. I woke up, and I was in this, oh, I was a very, it was a good dream, and I, I can't, I'm not going to go into it. But in the dream, I knew that I was healed. That is a continuing abiding in Christ. I didn't have anybody pray for me in my dream. I just prayed. I mean, I don't know. I, 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 I just received the healing in my dream. And this morning I woke up without my cold. And colds are not one of those things that just go away overnight. I haven't taken any cough medication today. I didn't take any DayQuil today. I didn't, and normally I'd be sniffling up and I would be in my nose because I was right in the middle of it. You know how colds are. You've had them. They come and they get really hard for a while, then they taper off. Well, this one just stopped. I was healed in a dream. Isn't that exciting? That's the confidence that Jesus walked in. And that's the confidence that we can walk in every day. Yes, I have problems. I have stresses. I have a bunch of problems next door. I don't know what's going on over there. But you know what? I'm walking confidently that God has it in control. And he's going to call, and I'm going to be ready, and I'm going to answer the call to what he wants me to do, no matter what's happening in my life.
You know, I never would have had that sense of urgency unless I would have gone through this. I had a pretty easy life in Brighton. I made a lot of money. We did a nice house. We had a really easy time down there. We had a nice church. We were in a nice bubble, and I enjoyed it. But I have never sensed the urgency of God in my life since I've had this experience up here. I never would have received that if I wouldn't have had to go through what I'm going through. So do I get upset about that? And do I blame God for that? Or do I willfully say, Father, you do what you need to do in my life and make it happen. And I'm going to walk with the confidence, Jesus, that you walked with every day. And I'm going to know that you are who you are. And I know who I am. And I know who my family is. And my wife and I are going to stand strong, even though we have problems in this issue. We're going to stand strong in it because we know we have a personal expectation of who Jesus Christ is and what he does in my life and what he's going to do in this church and what he's going to do in your life and what he's going to do next door. Christy, would you come stand me? You know, it's so hard, people, to preach and have to live it out. It's so much easier to preach and not have to live it out. I wish I could. But when you live it, and I know you're living it too, and I know you're going through the same issues as we are, I'm not unique in this thing, but you know what? I'm calling out this because it's the thing that God wants me to call out. I need your prayer, and and you need my prayer, and we need to walk confidently together with Christ. And if we walk that way, nothing will take us out of the hand of Jesus Christ. Nothing will take us out of his hand. Would you stand with me? Let's just come down and close with a word of prayer down here in the front. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thanks, Chris. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You know, there was something else that Jesus had a real gift at. Jesus would be in a crowd of people. And uh, he would be around, and there'd be people all around him. But he never lost sight of the individuals in the crowd. He always saw the needy person. A good example is the lady that had the the issue of blood, and Jesus was walking through, and, and quite often back then they would walk along the path, and he would teach as he's walking. And there was a big crowd of people gathered around as Jesus was walking, and people were pressing in, touching and pressing in. They were getting, you know, just walking in a big crowd of people. If, if you've ever been at Michigan football games or any big stadium and walking along a crowd, people are touching you all the time. You're constantly being bumped and pushed and touched, and, and you're just grabbing your wallet to make sure people aren't picking your pocket and all that stuff, you know. But Jesus was walking down, and some little lady didn't even just grab his garment down, at the, down by his ankle. And Jesus felt it. He said, stop. Somebody touched me. And his disciples said, yeah, of course they touched me. They all touched me. He says, no. No, I felt it. I felt something leave me today. I felt righteousness leave me. I felt healing leave my body. That is the confidence that Christ walked in every day. So as we gather here in this crowd, understand that Jesus sees your need. He sees you right in the midst of this crowd right here. And what you have to do 
is be like the lady, reach out and touch him. He's a gentleman. He's not going to come down if you don't want him. But if you want him, all you have to do is reach out and touch him and say, Father, it's me. Blind Bartimaeus called out, Father, he said, Jesus, heal me. And he was a blind man. He happened to see Jesus. He happened to know Jesus was walking by at the time. And he was hollering out, Jesus, heal me. Jesus, heal me. And everybody was saying, Barnabas, shut up. And he kept hollering, Jesus, healed me. And it was because he kept hollering, Jesus, stopped. And he said, I see you, Bartimaeus. And he healed the blind man because he kept crying out. So today as we pray, and as we end this service, in your own quiet way or your own vocal way, whatever way you want to do it, but you have to call out. He's not going to do it because you who you are. He's going to do it if you call out and say, Jesus, heal me. Jesus, it's me. I need a touch. And when you call out, he will be faithful to touch you. And then you walk in that confidence knowing that he has you in his hand. So if you have a need this morning, either raise your hand, speak it in your mind, speak it out loud, and as we, as we close, as we pray this closing prayer, you take your responsibility, your personal expectation, and you put it in action right now in Jesus' name, and you call out what you need to have in your life and let it be done. Father, Lord, we stand right now in your presence. Yes, we are in a crowd of people here at the front of this church, but Lord, you know me personally. And you know every one of these people personally. And you know their needs. You know what they're crying out for. You know their needs. They are crying out in whatever need they have, whether it be healing or financial or emotional or relational. It doesn't make any difference to you, Father. They're calling out, Lord. And now all we need to do is walk in the confidence of Jesus Christ and saying that we know who you are. And you know who we are. And now, Father, we just receive it from it right now in Jesus' name. Holy Spirit, do your work. Holy Spirit, we authorize you, we release you to do the work that needs to be done in Jesus' name. We release it in Jesus' name. Father, we just call out to you. We call out to you, Father. Hear our prayer. Hear our needs. See us where we're at, I pray. And answer. Give us that what we need, Father, according to what your will is for our life. Thank you, Jesus. Now, Father, as we go to our homes today, I pray, Father, that you would just go with us and lead us and let this word not be void. Lord, let us think about this and chew on this, Lord, and bring us back tonight to hear more of your word. Lord, I pray that you would, your kingdom would just go with us and walk with us today. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you need more prayer, you're welcome to stay. People are here to pray with you. If you would like more prayer, we'd be happy to pray with you. Amen. Amen.